0: Oh, there we go. I came up here and uh, some friends of ours said, you're doing so good. And I'm like, why? I just came up here. <laughs> Thank you for the encouragement from Jet and some of the younger kids. Um, my name is Manoj. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy and privilege to, to share God's word with you this morning. For those of you who are on YouTube, uh, thanks for joining us remotely. Um, we're in this series called Faithful to the Core, thinking about our core identities. And you, you see them behind us. It's these icons that are here. Um, two weeks ago, Pastor Scott started talking about, or he, he taught about um, being gospel centered, the first icon there with the cross and, and, and the crown of thorns around it. Um, as we go through this series, we're going to touch on each one of those. Different folks will be talking about each one of those areas, primarily to make sure that we as a church have a shared language, a shared understanding of what we believe, what we value, what we hold in, in high esteem here. When, when Pastor Scott spoke about being gospel-centered, uh, Rachel, if you can go to the next side, um, he, he put this quote up. Oh, sorry. This is my—I was supposed to do that. Hold, one sec. Go back one. Um, <laughs> uh, we had—we uh, talked about service, right, serving inside the church. Um, serving outside the church this past week on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we had seven folks help out at Replenish. Um, which is a ministry that works, it's it's actually a nonprofit that works in Middlesex County, to uh, bring food and and get uh, food distributed to various uh, homeless shelters, various uh, food banks across the county. And we had seven of our folks, um, and there's the highlight there. The JW team, the Jacobswell team, seven folks, moved seven tons, tons, 14,000 pounds is what uh, Peter Ellison told me, seven tons of boxed and canned goods in four hours. So these folks have signed up. They don't need a gym membership because they know how to move stuff. So thank you to uh, Pete and Christy Ellison, uh, Renee Kraft, Tony Uhas, Hannah Yook, Brian Grosner, and Mike Freiber. Thanks for for helping out at Replenish. We'll have more opportunities like that uh, coming up in the course of the year. Thank you for putting that up. I completely forgot about that. (laughs) Um, Pastor Scott, two weeks ago, talked about uh, being gospel-centered, and he put this quote up says, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment, from sin, into fellowship with him, and then restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever, from, from Pastor Tim Keller in New York. And we talked about, uh, Pastor Scott talked about, and, and we all heard um, what the gospel is. The gospel means good news or a good message. And that message is centered on the work of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the historical reality that Jesus lived and walked on this earth, the work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection from the dead. And we're reminded that God loves and pursues us. It's not us. It's not mankind trying to pursue God. It is God coming down, being incarnate, being flesh and blood, and pursuing us. And then we talked about the fact that the kingdom of God is breaking into our lives and communities. We just finished singing that. Um, The kingdom is yours. The fact that God's kingdom is one that is on the move. God is working. And that's what we mean by being gospel-centered. If you go to the next slide, he also put up this picture, saying that the gospel story is centered in the story of the Bible. The fact that God created there was a fall, God, God created man and women and all the, um, all the creatures and, and all, the, all of creation, and yet somewhere in the middle of that, there was rebellion. And in order to close the gap of that rebellion and that broken relationship, God had to redeem, and he provided Jesus, his son. And we're now in a phase where the world is being restored. Uh, our lives are being restored, people are being restored, communities are being restored by that truth, the fact that God has come, God has pursued us, and as a result of his pursuit, there can be restoration. God wants us to be ministers of the same thing. If you go to the next slide, one of the things we, 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 we touched on last time was the fact that that gospel centrality, the fact that we're gospel-centered, is a core identity that then ties into and gives life to all these other identities that we've got here on the board, or behind us, (laughs) on the wall. Uh, We're to be thoughtfully engaged, and we'll we'll dig into that this week. Um, We'll talk about life in multi-ethnic community and what that means for us here in Central Jersey in a couple of weeks. Then after that, we'll talk about what it means to seek justice and mercy in the communities and neighborhoods that God has placed us. And then lastly, what it means to be joyful and generous in the mission that God has called us to using our time, our treasure, our talents. But at the core of it is the fact that we are a gospel-centered people. If you go to the next slide, what does it mean then to be thoughtfully engaged? I want you to think about that for a second. It's one of our core identities. What does it mean to be thoughtfully engaged, to be thoughtful, to be engaged? We'll talk about that a little bit this morning. What does it mean? I wanna answer five questions. What does it mean? Why is it important? where are we supposed to do this, and then how can we do this? And the reason that it's important is because it's good news. We have a responsibility to share that good news. And what we have to do that in a way that's not just engaged, not just thoughtful, it's got to be thoughtful and engaged. Let me pray for us as we begin our time. God, thank you for the fact that your word is truth, uh, that your word is sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces into the heart. And so, Father, I pray that uh, the words that I might share as we talk through your word, as we read it, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would penetrate our hearts, Lord, uh, transform us, change us into the people that you want us to be. And so, Father, we just commit this morning to you. I commit my words to you. Uh, commit the words that I've written down here to you, and I pray that uh, it would have impact the way that you uh, need it to have impact in each one of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things I learned in in business school is that whenever you take uh, these ideas, it's it's good to plot them on a little bit of a table. So this is a standard business school uh, graphic. Uh, Go ahead and put that up, Rachel. Um, I I started thinking about what does it mean to be thoughtful and what does it mean to be engaged? And as you think about that, all of us want to be, and I put some words in there that are in color. Some of you hopefully can see that. Um, All the way on the top right, when we're thoughtfully engaged, Um, I put the word impactful. We want to be influential. We want to be impactful. We want to have impact on other people's lives. And we have a responsibility to do that because of what we talked about earlier. Because we're gospel-centered, we have a responsibility to be thoughtfully engaged. And we want to have God's word impact our lives. We want God's word to impact other people's lives. What does it mean, though, if we're engaged but not thoughtful, when we're thoughtless? What happens there? I use the word irresponsible or hurtful. We can be full of excitement to engage in the needs of society, but not being thoughtful about the impact, sometimes a negative impact, that that can have. When we went to, as a family, we went on a missions trip to Honduras in 2016. And one of the books that we had to read prior to going was this book called um, When Helping Hurts. And it talks about what happens in various missions organizations, as well as in philanthropic organizations, when you just pour dollars at a problem, one, you, you don't dignify the, the people that are there oftentimes. And as we were going out there, we were reminded that sometimes if we go in with the mentality that we're going to go help another individual because they need help, while that may be true, it doesn't dignify the other person. Um, sometimes being thoughtless and engaged can be irresponsible. Sometimes it can even be hurtful, not knowing the context of the people or the groups that we're engaging with. You know, our call is first to do no harm, listen and learn. This is something that uh, I've been learning this past six months or so. Uh, I've been taking a bunch of classes on counseling, and it's been interesting. I'm an analytical person. I don't do feelings all that well. I don't understand feelings all that well. And now I'm in the world where everything is learning about feelings, um, First, do no harm, listen, and be willing to learn. I've had to learn how to listen, how to really be present um, through these weird exercises to try and really listen to what somebody's saying. Not to think about what am I going to say next, not to think about what problem am I going to solve. I'm a problem solver. But to listen. Something that I... Uh, that I read in a management book many years ago. It says, prescription before diagnosis is malpractice. Oftentimes, if we're thoughtless and engaged, we can prescribe something that can hurt somebody. Prescription before diagnosis is malpractice. What about the other quadrant? What about if we're thoughtlessly disengaged? I use the word distracted. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. We live in a culture that we've got distractions. I'll talk about this book. Uh, John Mark Comer is a pastor out in Portland, Oregon. Um, Bridgetown Church is the church that he pastors, a big multi-ethnic, um, multi-geographic church that's there. Um, one of the things he says is that we have infinity in our pockets. Um, the amount of time that you can spend distracted, um, whether it's on the phone or any number of other things, right? I'm, I'm not hating on phones. I've got it, and, and, I, and I love it. Um, I can't I can't imagine life without it. However, the reality is that we can be thoughtless and disengaged, completely distracted. What about thoughtfully disengaged? Um, Sometimes as Christians, we can be so thoughtful, so focused on cerebral stuff, right? What what does the gospel have to say? What are are the Greek words here? What What are the nuances of scripture? And not get engaged. And I'm not hating on either side. I'm saying that, hey, we have to be aware of the fact that there are times in life where we can be very, very thoughtful, and yet it's all up here. It's all in our heads. It doesn't impact our hearts. It doesn't impact our hands and feet that we actually go and do anything. So thoughtlessly disengage is one of those areas um, that I think we need to be thinking through and say, hey, are we too cautious? Are we, it's good to be discerning. Are we too cautious? Are there risks that God wants us to take in life And sometimes we can be thoughtfully engaged and we may need to disconnect. We may need to disengage so that we can be a little bit more thoughtful about what to do next. Next, I want to talk about why. So that's the what. What does it mean to be thoughtfully engaged? Hopefully with a couple of different parameters that that help you think through that. The next thing is why. Why is it important to be thoughtfully engaged? I want to read that that passage in the scrolly Bible here that uh, that Jalen just read. I actually don't know what to call it. I call it the scrolly pop. Um Matthew 5, it's, it, it, Jesus says, You, you, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how, can it be, how, can, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good words and give glory to your Father in heaven. Here Jesus talks about this picture of salt and light, and he uses two things that were very common in in the day there. What does it mean to be salt and light in the 21st century in central New Jersey. You know, we proclaim God uh, through our words as well as our actions. Through our words, sometimes through how God has worked in our life, stories of how God has been transforming your own life. Through our actions, our demeanor, our hospitality or lack, our helping others to meet the needs of others, the manner in which we live individually as a family and as a community, all that has an influence. Salt is supposed to permeate, or it does permeate. Uh, those of you who are cooks, you put salt in the food. It permeates the food. You can't find it, right? Once you put it in, you, it dissolves. You, you can't find it in the food, but yet it's left its impact. It, it permeates, it influences, it leaves an impact, sometimes unseen. Light has, a, has the ability to attract and expose how does salt lose its saltiness? I was thinking about that this week, and I had to sort of Google search it and say, how, how does salt lose its saltiness? What What is the context of this? Because every time I've taken salt off the shelf, I put it in my mouth, it tastes salty. How does it lose its saltiness? And so there, this is you know, historical fiction, or sorry, historical trivia. Um, in, in, in Back in Jesus's day, salt was oftentimes mined, and there's lots of impurities, and so salt would be stored. and either through humidity or through evaporation, the impurities would be what remain, and the salt would, would ooze out, if you will, or leach out wherever it was stored. If it wasn't stored in the, in, 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 um, in the barn or wherever it might be, it, was, it was, had lots of impurities. It came from mines most of the time. And so that's where when Jesus says, if you lose your saltiness and your ability to influence, It's good for nothing other than to throw on the ground and be used for gravel. I have a good salt story. Uh, I like to cook, um, primarily because it was cathartic for me when when I had a high-stress job. Even even now, I enjoy cooking just because it helps me think. I'm not a very creative person. That's one of the few areas that I can be creative in. Um, And the story is about a Dead Sea soup. One day, I made soup, and I put salt in, and a clump of it fell into the soup. And I didn't think it was that bad. But we sat down together to eat it, and it was repulsive. There is the reality that, you know, on one side, salt can lose its... that saltiness has no influence or impact. On the other hand, it can be repulsive if you got too much. And we call that salt Dead Sea Soup because um, it, it was too much salt. Um, we were all stuck during, in the house during... Covid this year, uh, our whole family got Covid, and so we had a chance to you know make more soups and eat, eat, and have fun together as a family. And we had uh, a good time chuckling about Dead Sea soup um, and, and my my failed attempt there. The next question I want to answer is you know, where where are we to be thoughtfully engaged? John chapter seventeen in the scrolly Bible here you'll see it up in a second, verses fifteen to eighteen. Jesus says I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one they meaning us they are not of the world just as I am not of the world sanctify them in the truth your word is truth as you sent me into the world so I have sent them into the world I want to talk about this juxtaposition that Jesus talks about here if you go to the next slide there's this reality that we're called to be in the world, but not of the world, right? And I, I, Scott and I were talking about this, and we were thinking about what's, what's a good word here, and we came up with redemptive influence, right? So somewhere we have to have the ability to take what is the gospel, what Jesus has done, what he has done to redeem us, and what he is doing to redeem others, and take that message and have influence in other people's lives. We are to be called to be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus said, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. I have sent them into the world, in verse 18. But they, we, are not of the world, just as Jesus wasn't of this world. You know, Hebrews 2.9 says that we're a chosen people. We're a people that have been set apart, cleansed by Jesus' blood. Uh, Hebrews uses the word um, royal priesthood, a holy nation, we're other than the world. We just finished thinking about your kingdom come. When we did the Lord's Prayer series, we talked about and studied through what does it mean that God's kingdom would come? Your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We're to be a people that brings the kingdom of God from heaven to earth in the places that He's placed us. Jesus is our example. Now, he didn't lose the essence of who God was or who he was in God. He was full of grace and truth, love and forgiveness. And some of the temptations that we can have as individuals as we look to follow Jesus is we can fall into these two extremes. On one extreme, we can be so radically identified with the culture and the world around us that we lose our message. The salt has lost its saltiness because we're so radically identified with the community, the culture, the environment that's around us, that we become, I use the word assimilation, we become assimilated to that, that there's no distinctiveness, there's no salt left, there's no influence left. On the other side, we can be so Jesus-focused that there's incredible difference, there's incredible radical difference in our message, the way that we live our lives, the the things that we read, the things that we study, the things that we say, we can be so radically different that it can cause isolation. And what happens there? We've become, the message has become so repulsive that you've isolated yourself or others have isolated themselves from you and you've lost your audience. Somewhere in the balance is what Jesus says, be in the world but not of the world. Have influence but not be isolated. Don't be assimilated to the world and the culture and the ways of the world, but be in it. Right? Be in it. Understand the culture of the world. Understand what's going on in culture, but yet don't be so influenced by it that we become fully assimilated into it and people can't see the difference. You know, Radical identification or assimilation one of the things that John Mark Homer in his book says that we, uh, it's an observation. We live in a consumeristic society. And he uses these terms. We serve the gods of accumulation and accomplishment. Accumulation and accomplishment. And, and that's pervasive. It's not just an American thing. It's, it's across the globe as Western society has uh, propagated our consumerism globally. Our temptation in, in the world of assimilation or in this side our temptation is to be so one with the culture that there's nothing distinct about me. We lose the essence of the gospel. The salt has lost its saltiness. This doesn't usually happen overnight. It's not a, a flip of the switch. Psalm one says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers. There's this progression. We stand in the way, in the counsel of the wicked. Our thinking is influenced. When we sit in the, sin, in, in the areas where sinners and scoffers are, our lifestyle is influenced. What's the result? We're, we're really engaged, not very thoughtful with the gospel. Salt has become saltless and ineffective. On the other side, we talked about isolation Jesus radically called us to himself and gave us a new identity. We are new creations and creatures, but when we we can nullify Jesus' message in society by sitting in our holy huddles and not engaging in culture, we can become ineffective in engaging with the culture because we've removed ourselves from it. Or our message is so repulsive or, or, or not, not not shared with gentleness that other people are repulsed by it. So it can be that our message is repulsive or the way that we're communicating makes others distance themselves from us. But we're called to be a redemptive influence in the world wherever God has placed you. In the arts, theater, symphony halls, musicians, playwrights, dance troupes, in the world of business that I'm most familiar with, boardrooms, conference rooms, hospital rooms, healthcare, manufacturing, from startups to small businesses to large enterprises, in the education systems, those of you who are teachers or students, in the classrooms, in the dorm rooms, in the lecture halls, those of you who are involved in various aspects of, of government, policymakers, courtrooms, military and armed forces, folks who are working in infrastructure, power, and water, those of you who are involved in media, sports, social media, TV, radio, content creators. God has placed you in areas that I won't have influence. God has placed each of you in places, in spheres of relationships where you'll have influence. And God's call there to us is to influence, is to be salt, is to be light. One, to let yourself be seen. Two, that our words, whatever we say out of our mouths, our actions, that there's congruence between our words and our actions and that it actually makes a difference in someone else's life. Society and people are influenced in all of these areas. Each of you have unique relationships in life, in your neighborhoods, in your areas of work, in your classrooms, that I won't have influence to. The, the person sitting to the left and right of you won't have influence over, but you do. And so I wanna challenge you this morning. Are you, are you salty, too salty? Are you salt less? something for us to think about. How do we do this? Um, If we go to the next slide, uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 39, as that comes up, uh, a little bit of context here. This is the first chapter of Mark. Um, It it, it sort of goes through the the day in the life of Jesus. It starts out, he's preaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, a town there. People are amazed at his teaching. He casts out evil spirits. As soon as they leave the synagogue, he goes to Simon's house, Simon, Peter, and Andrew's house. His mother-in-law is is ill. He heals her. People hear about this. And it says that after sunset, people gathered at the door. And in my translation, it says the whole town was there. Probably not a town as big as North Brunswick or East Brunswick or wherever, right? Maybe it's not 30,000 people, um, but it's probably 50, 100 people. The whole town was there. And Jesus was healing people through the night. And then we pick up here in verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, Jesus, departed, went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were there with him searched for him. And they found him, and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. So can you imagine Jesus? Oh Yeah, and then he says to them, Let's go to the other, other towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, casting out demons. So if, if you're, think about you know, this in the first century. If you're, if you're Simon Peter, or if, if you're Simon Peter now, and Jesus shows up, and he heals a bunch of people, um, what do you think would be happening? I use the little creative uh, juices here, right? CNN wants to do an interview over Skype with you, Jesus. Fox is sending their news crew over there right now. Hashtag Jesus Heals is trending all over Twitter and it's blowing up. It's gone viral. Trevor Noah wants you on his show and you're there, Peter. Peter's there, right? And he's saying, "Though no, everyone's there. Everyone's waiting for you. And Jesus, what did Jesus do? He says, no. I, I've got a different mission. We're, we're going to Galilee. We're, we're not staying here. He goes away to slow down, connect with his father, and coming out of that time, he gets a new assignment. Rachel, if you go to the next slide. And I think there's something here for us to think about as we think about what does it mean to be salt and light. Sometimes, especially in the culture that we live in now, we may need to slow down so that we can get the next message, so that we can get the next mission that God's placed on us. In his book here, John Mark Homer says, if you chart Jesus' lifelong pursuits along two axes, the busier and more in demand and famous Jesus became, the more he withdrew to his quiet place. Usually for us, it's the exact opposite. When we get over busy and life is hectic, and people are vying for our time, the quiet place is the first thing to go rather than our first go-to. The first thing we lose is unhurried time to just sit with God in the quiet, to pray, read a psalm, take an internal inventory, let our souls catch up to our bodies. In seasons of busyness, we need more time in the quiet place, not less, definitely not less. And if you're running through your Rolodex of excuses right now, I'm a full-time mom, I have a demanding job that starts early, I'm an extrovert, I have ADHD, etc., Stop for a minute. Think about this. Jesus needed time in the quiet place. I repeat, Jesus needed time, and a fair bit of it. You think you don't? It's was convicting when I was reading um, that, how often we run and we're distracted in that bottom left quadrant. We're not, we're not thoughtful, we're not engaged, just distracted. In his book, his basic premise is that Jesus needed to slow down, and if he needed to slow down, how much more do we need to slow down? We need to slow down to allow God to engage with our souls. And he talks about three practices, silence and solitude. Um, This is one of the things that we see now in in modern culture. We just call it mindfulness and meditation. They're both in vogue. Jesus talked about silence and solitude. He exemplified that. We shared a Sabbath meal, those of you who were here, those of you who were here on Friday night. Um, it's important to have Sabbath, uh, an intentional time of rest, whether that's you know, 24 hours for you or, or just some intentionality around resting, slowing down intentionally to rest and worship, individually and as a family. And then the other thing that John Mark Harmon talks about is, is simplicity and minimalism. Minimalism is like real in vogue again um, today. In my early 30s, I read a book by uh, Dr. Richard Swenson. The book was one word, margin. And he defined margin as the space between our load and our limits. The space between our load, the stuff we're carrying, and our limits. Oftentimes we think we're limitless. There was a show talking about limitless, right? We all want to be limitless. Um, But we have to understand that we have limits in so many different areas. And when our load... Is at the same level as our limits, we're on a treadmill, and you're running as fast as you can, and you're just making you're just making it. How do we increase margin? Fast-forward a couple of decades. Life has just gotten faster. Um, it's costing us as individuals and as society. We live in an attention economy. Uh, those of you who have Netflix, if you've not watched the social dilemma, I encourage you to watch it. Um, we live in an attention economy. When you're not paying for a service on a phone or an app, you're probably the product. Uh, you are the product, not that particular application. We live in an age of the infinitely distracted. We have access to infinity in our pockets. Um, when our kids were growing up, we, there was a, Pixar made a movie, um, a series of them, uh, with Buzz Lightyear. And he would say, to infinity and beyond, as part of the Toy Story series. We have infinity in our pockets. We have enough, um, and I use this as a, as, as a metaphor, but whatever it is for you, right, we have the ability to get distracted and to consume hours and hours and hours, whether it's on YouTube or TikTok or um, other social media things. Um, I'll tell you some changes that I made after reading through some of this. Our biggest focus in, in large corporations is productivity especially in a world that's distracted. How do we help our employees become productive when they're distracted? And focus is one of the biggest areas that's, that's in vogue right now in the business world. We've identified new disorders as a result of this. Entertainment anxiety is a thing. Learned about it. Um, if you've ever you know, had the experience where somebody says, hey, have you watched this series on whatever it is, whether it's on Hulu or Netflix or whatever, and you're like, oh, they, they say it's great. You're like, oh, i got to add it to my queue. Um, and apparently there's, it, it creates anxiety. Email apnea. Um, yeah. <laughs> I had that same reaction, uh, but I'm learning about this in these counseling classes. There's, there are new disorders and dysfunctions that we're identifying as a result of something that was supposed to make, us, make life simple for us. And it does. And again, I worked in, in the tech industry for all of my 30 years, and I love technology. We just have to know when to use it as a tool, and when it's using us as a product. So here's something that, if you could put up the next slide. Um, I'm going to have you spend a little bit of time introspectively thinking through some stuff in a few minutes. As you think about where do you invest your time, do you, you know we, we all have a, you know presumably, all of us do some level of budgeting and management to manage our, our resources, our finances, right? If you don't, you're going to be bankrupt pretty soon. Do we think about our time in the same manner? As you think about your time, you know, we're in January. um, This is still a good time to do inventory, look backwards, look forwards to goals and other things. Where are you with your relationships, your spouse, your children, parents, siblings, friends, extended family, neighbors? Do you have time for them? How about areas of ministry? We just heard about a bunch of teams here at the church, opportunities that we're going to have to serve outside. Whether it's in our community or here at Jacob's Well, do you have time for that? How about your career? What spheres of influence are you in where God has uniquely placed you? If you're a student, classmates, roommates, professors, how are you spending your time there? We talked about Sabbath, but this intentionality around rest and leisure it's important to decompress. One of the things I learned from the Europeans as I was traveling around a lot, you know, Europeans know how to take good vacations. They take all of August off, and nobody blinks an eye. Nobody blinks an eye in their culture. In our culture, I took four weeks off one year, and my, I, I, I thought that I had four heads. The, the kind of reactions I got. But that's one of the things that I've learned for ourselves when our, as our kids were younger, now I would encourage you almost challenge you to find a way to take 2 weeks off. At least it takes for me it took a week to get work out of my head so that I could engage in a real way. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe I've just got adult ADHD. But I think it's important for us to unplug for an extended period of time. How about areas of spiritual and personal growth? What are you reading? What are you learning? Learning a new language? Health and wellness. What does sleep look like for you? Exercise, nutrition. I just want to challenge you as as we begin this new year. You know, we're three weeks in, barely, um, in another year of of COVID with lots of uncertainty and lots of pressures put on our time that we have no control over. The reality is that time is, is our life. Our life is our time and our time is our life. And we live in a culture that wants to hack everything, right? We want life hacks, things that'll make things easier. We want to hack everything. But at the end of the day, you've got 24 hours, the same amount of time that I've got, 24 hours in a day. The real question is, are you looking at those hours as an investment? Where do you want to invest those hours? And I want to challenge you. Certain seasons of life will dictate a priority. If you've got young kids, they're going to dictate a priority in your life, if you've got Older kids that are in three different sports leagues, that's going to dictate your time. Certain seasons of life will create limits and constraints and would also create opportunities for you to think and prioritize. I want to take a couple of minutes here. Um, I've shared a lot of content. If you go to the next slide, Rachel, I want you to take four minutes and think about these questions. This is a good time to you know, pick out a piece of paper, grab one of the cards in front of you, a pen, open up your phones. What areas of life need some thoughtful attention on your end? Is it your relationships? Which relationships? Ministry, service, career, leisure, rest, personal spiritual growth, health and wellness. Which areas of your life are there one or two that God's brought to your mind that you need to put some thoughtful attention into? And then I want to challenge you, as we think about being salt and light, who are five people in your life don't know Jesus. What can you do to be intentional with these individuals this year? Intentional. Intentional means you're gonna have to say no. That's that question in blue. What distractions do you need to say no to in order to prioritize time to address some of those areas? Um, In the world of math there are these different types of games, right? Um, One of them is called a zero-sum game, meaning that you've got a pie chart, If you take some section out, the pie doesn't get bigger. You've got 24 hours. The game of life is around how do you prioritize those 24 hours. And you need to spend eight hours in sleep. That gives you 16. What what do you do with that time? Life is a zero-sum game. There's no way to add to it. Um, The only way it gets subtracted is is, is, is when all of us die. But there's no way to add to it. There's no way to buy more time. We use that colloquially, right? I want to buy more time. But there's no way to buy it. There's no resources on Earth that can give you more time. So I want you to do a little introspection, a little process time here as we, as we close here. Take inventory. Look back. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> T- take a moment to, take three or four minutes. I'm going to put a timer. We'll give ourselves four minutes. And in some of those four minutes, God may just be bringing to mind areas where you need to pay some careful attention hopefully God brings three or four people to your mind four or five people to your mind who don't know Jesus and think about what it's going to mean for you to make time for those individuals to be thoughtfully engaged four minutes can seem like an eternity, Um, but it's important for us to slow down, to take intentional time to think through what God's doing in your heart. I'll tell you the two things that I, the two changes that I made, uh, I took, don't judge, I took TikTok off of my front page and moved it into a folder on my second page, and that's made a big difference, Um, made a big difference. Um, And the second thing I did, I used to do this years ago, um, but somehow my phone ended up on my night table near my bed. And this past week, I I moved it back into my office where where it was. And it's made a big difference. I don't know what it's going to be for you, but we're going to have to take, you've got 24 hours, you're going to have to find time that you're going to have to undistract yourself. As we move into our time of communion, I wanted to read this over us. The reality of who Jesus was. It's a poem of sorts called One Solitary Life by Dr. James Allen, written in 1926. You've probably heard it before. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village, where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And while dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. 20 centuries have passed. Sorry, 20 centuries have come and gone. And today, Jesus is the central figure of the human race. All the leaders of mankind's progress, all the armies that have ever marched, all the natives that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. Impact, influence came together when Jesus became a man. And that's what we get to celebrate as we share communion together.